We're going to uh, jump in the scripture in just a second here. Before we do, what, if you guys want, why don't you open your Bibles right now to the book of Matthew chapter 19. That's a passage that we're going to be in at some point today, but we do actually have a lot of other passages that we're going to be reading. Um, before we jump in, um, we've been in a series, if you are new here, going through the book of First Peter, just looking at it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you've been around the church the past few months, you know that we've been talking about this kind of moving towards it, but the last two weeks we've been looking at chapter 3, and he focuses on the subject matter of husbands and wives, and about a month and a half ago, two months ago, I told you that what I wanted to do is not only look at husband and wives that the text kind of describes, but I also want to add a freebie for you all, and really looking at the subject of singles, or singleness, or the way the Bible describes it is actually unmarried. Um, The Bible does not necessarily use even the language single or singleness, Uh, so I'm going to do as best as I can to use the language of unmarried, but if I slip, sometimes I'll probably just call it singles. Um, That being said, for some of you are... You are married, and so you might think immediately this might not necessarily pertain to you. Um, I want to highly recommend you not tuning out, and really in anything, if anything, pay attention clearly, because this really does pertain, I would say, to the entire church family. Um, before we even jump in, what I want to do is I also want to talk a little bit about last week. So last week, um, we looked at the subject of men doing good, the idea of what it looks like for husbands, specifically doing good. To get to that point, one of the things I wanted to do is point out a little bit of the background of the ancient Roman world in which Peter was addressing and speaking to. I realized last week that there was a lot of stuff and content that I talked about that was no doubt, and I even mentioned it, was going to potentially be triggering for some and objectionable in some cases for others as well. And uh, that being said, um, I had some good conversations with some people this past week that I thought would be really good to, number one, just acknowledge the fact that the content of last week may have been troubling um, and or triggering. And that may have been due to either some of the terminology that I use or even the tone in which I had communicated. So what I want to, first of all, do, secondly, is to just acknowledge that and, secondly, apologize if in any way, shape, or form that was triggering or offensive or frustrating um, and or if you had little ones here where most of the content that we have on Sunday morning is hopefully PG, PG-13, I think last week probably teetered into higher level. So um, if that was inappropriate, again, I apologize for that. Lastly, I also wanted to just acknowledge the fact of invitation um, to communicate. So if ever on a Sunday morning or any other time you guys hear me teach, I've been doing this for a long time, um, I am not perfect at what I do at my craft. I try to continually hone my gifting that God's allowed me to be able to have, and that means I'm going to be making mistakes. So when I do make mistakes or when there's ways in which I can improve or do things better or word things in a way that might be more in line with a more uh, amiable way of communicating the, the aim of the gospel, um, and that is something that God may want to use you to help me craft that better. In other words, I'm inviting you to talk to me. I'm more than happy as a pastor. I'm, um, I, even though I may, my role in this church may be a pastor, uh, I am also a fellow brother in Christ with you, alongside you. That's, that's who I am. Um, in other words, as a role in this church, um, I'm just, may have a certain specific, you know, highlightedness, whatever. But the fact of the matter is I'm also a brother in Christ with you. So I welcome any type of feedback that you have, conversations that you want to have. Um, I think, number one, what 
benefits from that as we all do. Number one, I benefit because I, I learn and I grow in terms of knowing how to be able to communicate things in a more articulate and a more sensitive fashion. Number two, I think it also protects um, the general population of people that might find themselves getting frustrated or hurt or offended, holding on to that, nurturing. That never is a good, healthy thing. And what the end of the day is it creates, I think, a, a family where we're able to just continue to grow together in the grace that God gives us. So there, there you go. If you guys were here last week, you heard that, and any of that resonates with you, great. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, Welcome to Calvary Slow. All right, what we're going to do right now is we're going to jump in. We're going to look at really the subject matter of singleness, singleness. And what I want to focus on is the idea of singles doing good. Again, like I mentioned, we've been in this theme of looking at the book of First Peter, and he's been talking a lot about the idea of suffering well, and yet at the same time of doing good, or the way it is described up there, suffering and the glory. Before I jump in, I want to just acknowledge the fact that I've put together a resource list of information. So if you would like, go ahead and scan that. So I have a bunch of resources available for those of you that are interested in digging deeper on this. Again, um, the past several weeks, past several months actually, but especially the past couple weeks, I feel like I've been drinking from a fire hose of information and content. So what you're getting here this morning in this little half an hour like segment, actually it's going to be a two-week deal, but I'll tell you more about that in a second. Um, this little window of time here right now is literally backed up by hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of all sorts of other information that I found really, for me personally, very helpful and advantageous. So if that's something that would be of interest to you, and again, maybe if you're not single, you're married, and you'd like to kind of dig in a little bit deeper on this to understand this topic a little bit more at length, definitely check this stuff out. There are podcasts, there's book recommendations, there are articles, blog posts, and whatnot for you to be able to access and avail yourself of. And if you missed this code, I have the codes available right here. Some of the tables back there, you'll see that same like little thing right there somewhere around. So go ahead and scan that. That should take you to all the information right there. Um, for a quick show of hands, just out of curiosity, how many of you in the room right now are married? Are married right now, currently? Okay, so that's kind of what I was expecting. It's about half. That means about fifty percent right now in this church, and I don't even think that's fully representative for the sum total of the church community that we have. I would say that probably the majority of people in our church community here on the Central Coast are unmarried or would fit that category of being single. Singleness is not necessarily a category of people that just, A, aren't married, meaning that they've chosen not to be married. Maybe they're like 20-something. But it could also mean people that are either divorced, people that for whatever reason have never gotten married, they've chosen not to, or a variety of other reasons, or they have had a spouse that they've lost. And so the fact of the matter is, I would say that for the most part, the majority of people in a church gathering or church community, especially our church gathering, gathering, are single and or unmarried. Um, What I want to do right now is I want to shift gears a little bit and think about this with you guys, that I have a little slide. Next one, I'm going to read this from the stat.com, statista.com. It's kind of informative. It says this, in industrialized countries, the share of singles has been rising over the last decades. This is written as of 2020. Um, 2021. Uh, This phenomenon can be observed geographically and culturally diverse countries such as the United States, France, and Japan. In Japan, for instance, changing demographics have led to an emergence of a real quote-unquote single culture, dubbed, let me try that, uh, movement in Japanese. 
Not everyone is affected by this shift, though. As of 2019, Hindus and Muslims around the world were the least likely to live in households where it's just one adult present. So in other words, I think this actually highlights a really interesting shift, which I'm not going to get into today. Next week, I'll get into that and more. I'll explain why um, I'm going to basically break this down in two weeks. Number one, I've just got way too much content um, to try to shove into a half an hour segment. Number two, because this is number one, uh, a message I've never taught, actually. I've never actually on a Sunday morning taught, addressed a message just to an unmarried community of people. Uh, Number three, the reason why I think it's important to do this is because, again, like I said, it represents over 50% of our church. These are human beings, people that bear the image of God, people that are dealing with true life uh, questions and trying to figure out how to exercise fidelity or doing goodness in the life of a follower of Jesus in our context. And again, the reason why I think this is important, if you are a married person, because you need to know some of the struggles that are real that others are faced with and how they're trying to navigate them. Because again, if we truly are to live out this thing called discipleship or being followers of Jesus, that means that we are all in this together. Whether you're unmarried, whether you're married, we're all in this together. Our aim as a family, as a community, is to figure out how to work together and lovingly serve one another in this whole thing. But the point that I'd make is this, is that it's interesting to me that this little statistic points out a very uh, clear distinction between kind of an Eastern mindset and a Western mindset or a progressive or a traditional mindset. Again, like I said, I'm not going to get into that this week. Next week, I'll talk a little bit more about that. What I want to do this week specifically is I really want to try to focus on more of a theological groundwork or an understanding as to the development of this idea of married, families, and then singleness throughout the entire Bible. So it's kind of going to be a 30,000 above, you know, sea level view of a lot of this information. Hopefully it will be of interest to you and you won't fall asleep. But um, my hope would be that this will actually give you a good groundwork as to why this matters. So the point that I would make is this, is that it is interesting to me over the past few decades, as this thing points out, um, that especially among uh, majority of people, the median age, for the first time really ever in the history of the West, the uh, first time people getting married um, has risen, especially for men, from age 29 to 30. So the first time men are going to marry is between age 29 to 30. I didn't get a chance to do some deep research into, like, what was that when I was born? I was born in 1970. What was that like maybe in the 50s? I'm certain in the 50s. It was probably in the 20s, early 20s. Um, But today, for the first time ever, people are waiting a much longer time before they actually get married. For women, it's between age 27 and 28. And for a lot of people, the idea of singleness creates an overwhelming amount of anxiety. That's important to just note. There's an overwhelming amount of anxiety that oftentimes goes along with people that are unmarried. Questions oftentimes that arise are things like this. How does one remain sexually pure? What does contentment look like, even while at the same time hoping to one day maybe get married? Um, Can I be sexual without a spouse? What does it mean to wait patiently while proactively looking for a spouse? I think these are questions that oftentimes occupy the minds of those that are unmarried, that are in this single state. 
again, as well as a lot of other ones. Um, this past week, I actually asked a question on my social media just about this. Uh, what would be one thing or a handful of things that if you are a single, unmarried person, what would you want maybe the rest of us to know? And the amount of information that came back to me, whether it be uh, just on publicly posted or people just private messaging me, was, was a lot. It was overwhelming. It was a lot. So I'm not going to be able to get at all of them, but I'm going to try to pepper in uh, little bits and pieces here today and the next week. And uh, here's a few of them. Number one, um, marriage and parenthood. Made, these are, again, feedback from singles in our community and beyond, people that were part of my social media world. Marriage and parenthood may not be for everyone. And it's not because we're broken or incapable. Think about that. Think about that. Imagine being a human being, thinking, feeling like you have to defend. I'm not incapable. I'm not broken. Stop looking at me as if I'm broken. That, that's, that's horrible that some would feel that way. That's, that's not good. We need to change the title on that, I think. Um, another one is we want to be seen as valuable, even without children, a spouse or significant other. Um, they put in parentheses, love your single friends. Here's another one. We want to be part of your family when possible. Invite us over for dinner, maybe on vacations, etc. cetera. Uh, they wrote, in, the, the key is include, be inclusive, invite people like us over. Uh, another one said this, don't bring up dating unless we bring it up. It feels like we're lacking something if we're not dating. Um, this particular person went on to say, like, we, we look, we're not, closed to input and suggestions but we would prefer to be asked if it's something of interest to us i remember talking with a good friend of mine she's actually in her early 40s and she's never been married and she's been devoting her life to jesus and one of the things that she told me that over the years is she says it's most frustrating is that people always feel like they're trying to have to set her up as if somehow she's deficient she's broken they need to fix that and, and I just, my heart broke for that, and just hearing her describe that, because she's, she's, she's not broken. She's a highly functional human being, and she's really incredibly gifted, and the fact that she would actually feel that. Um, so the point that I'd make is that I think there's a lot here for us to really process, digest, to consider, to pray over, and to begin to uh, move into. So what I want to do right now is I want to basically take us on a little bit of a journey through the entirety of the Scripture and understand a little bit about this idea of marriage, family, maybe even land and territory and singleness. So with that, why don't we go ahead and open our Bibles if you'd like, or if not, I'm going to have all these things up on the screen. There's a lot of passages I'm going to cover, so if you want to pay attention quickly or write them down, you're more than welcome to go ahead and do that. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. So we're going to begin at the very beginning where God begins. Genesis chapter 2, 18 says this, the Lord God said, I'm going to go through these pretty quickly, and then um, at the end of this little section, I'm going to kind of do like a little bit of a rapid fire round. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have ushers that would love to get your Bible. Go ahead and grab one if you need one. If you don't own one, go ahead and keep it. It's our gift to you. Um, and at the end of this, I'm going to go through a little bit of a rapid fire round, um, some key points, and then we'll kind of wrap it up with some final summary thoughts. So with that, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says this, The Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. And then you know the story that God forms Eve out of Adam. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. So what we see is this idea of goodness. Goodness is attached or fixed to this idea of God bringing about a helpmate, someone who is going to fulfill him. Don't think helpmate being subservient. Think of helpmate being a completer, someone who basically fills in the areas where he lacks. That's the idea of helpmate. The Hebrew word is azer, uh, helper. Someone that, in fact, um, the word azer is actually a, a, a word that's actually used to describe God. God is described as an azer. 
to human beings. He comes along and he helps us. And that's the image that's described of the female, that God says this is good. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and then verse 7. I'll read these. This is the story of Abraham. It picks up. It says, And the Lord God said to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So what we see here so far is the idea of a spouse, um, children, this all being a part of the blessing, God then saying, I'm going to give you land and territory. So all of these things begin to shape the landscape of what it looks like to be part of a blessed people group. Those that are within the realm or the sphere or the domain of God's uh, blessing. Uh, Genesis chapter 48, skip ahead. It says this. Again, a lot of history. We're covering a lot of history here. Then Jacob blessed Joseph and said, may God bless these boys and in them let your name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the the midst of the land or the territory. So again, we get this idea of blessing in the context of marriage and family and land. So Deuteronomy chapter 25 is another one I'm not going to necessarily read, but you can just go ahead and read it on your own. This is what's called the Leveret Law. Um, This is the idea that if uh, a a son or a brother, let's say, for example, were to die, uh, you had this Leveret responsibility step in and help out procure, uh, prolong the lineage of that family. Again, the idea of blessing was around these constructs. So, so far what we see, kind of in summary, is the idea of goodness and or God's blessing um, really looked, looked like something that was deeply connected to um, all of these. Next, next one. Uh, it was all deeply connected to this idea of marriage, offspring, and land. But what I want to focus on is this idea is that something then begins to shift within the literature of the Bible. And this is where I want to take you on this journey because it gets really expansive and beautiful because up until this point right now, and I think like what we've seen is that All Bible scriptures obviously are inspired, God-breathed, but the point is that oftentimes things like scripture and Bible can be used in a way that actually becomes um, distinct from what God intended. In other words, we describe these as abuses uh, and within the formation of these abuses. And this is exactly what happened. So we begin to see this begin to play out. And there are times that obviously God steps in and brings about these corrections. And these is, this is one of the ways in which God begins to bring about um, a, a renewed direction as to what his intentions are. So, for example, in the prophetic literature, Isaiah chapter 53 is where it gets really rich. Listen, it says, in referring to whoever this person is, again, obviously, for the most part, uh, as a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian. Most of us here are Christians. We believe that this is a reference to Jesus. But what I want to really just do is let the literature do what it's intended to do. So just listen to what it says. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, As he was despised and rejected of men, he was a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, and as one from whom we hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Go down to verses 7 through 8. Of Isaiah chapter 53 says he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. Verse 8, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. Important to note. So whoever this person is, again, we believe it's Jesus. Whoever this person is that the author Isaiah is describing, that when he dies, he's rejected. 
Uh, he's not wanted. He's shoved off to the margin, shoved off to the sides, and then he dies without actually having descendants. No actual offspring. So again, up until this point, the idea would be that, oh, he must have been not blessed by God. He was just an utter cursing, which again, Isaiah begins to play on that a little bit further. Skip on down to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. So the very next chapter. It goes on to say, there's a little bit of a pivot in the text. It goes on to say, single barren woman. So it goes from this really dark theme to singing, an incitation to say, begin to sing. Lift up your voices. Happy people sing. This is what the prophet's saying. Single barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, who did not, uh, who, uh, who have not been in labor. For children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So this is an odd passage because what he's basically suggesting is that as he's inviting this lady to sing or the people that are kind of be participating in this, sing because even though you have never born children, you will have lots of children. You will bear, you'll be extremely um, fruitful in your life. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 4. This is where the story gets even more beautiful. It goes on to say, Don't let the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, The Lord will never let me be part of this people. So in other words, first of all, he says, don't ever let the, the, whatever point this is going to be, again, the prophetic literature is oftentimes looking to a future state. He says, when this happens, don't let those that are foreigners Don't let the outsiders, the ones that don't necessarily fit the mold, that don't necessarily fulfill the certain duties and requirements that the rest of the people of lineage have fulfilled. Don't let them say, we will never be part of God's people. So don't let them say that. It goes on to say, and don't let the eunuchs say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial, a name far greater than the sons and daughters could ever be given to them. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. So Isaiah, into the prophetic literature, introduces this eunuch. And again, if you know anything, we'll talk more about this in just a moment. But the idea of a eunuch was somebody that basically had a particular role. In fact, the word eunuch is interesting because the word eunuch literally means bedroom guard. Literally means bedroom guard. And they were, these were people that were typically men that were employed in a particular role to basically stand guard over a very powerful woman. Why? Because, just go figure it out. Something was adjusted and shifted biologically that this allowed them to be able to take advantage of any type of opportunities for them. But the point of the matter is, this is the idea. So if in that culture, that valued marriage, offspring, and land, if you are a eunuch, you are incapable of having offspring, and you'll probably never get married, which means you will never enter into the fullness of the inheritance that others are entering into. In fact, in the ancient Old Testament, it was described. God says, don't let anyone who is a eunuch enter into my inner courts. In other words, there was something that was set up so that those that were fitting this particular mold were oftentimes viewed as outsiders. That's really important to note. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Eunuchs were viewed as outsiders. Eunuchs were viewed as those that were never inheritors, full inheritors, full acceptors of the, the fullness that God has. So 
as we kind of shift gears and we move on into the New Testament, keeping in mind the idea that God makes his promise through Isaiah that these eunuchs, even though they were quote-unquote dry trees, meaning they're not able to have children, God says, I will give you a name that is beyond anything you can ever imagine. So what the text is telling us is that there's a sense of hopefulness beginning to spring forth for those, for the most part, in that culture, in that context, would have been viewed as outsiders or deficient or something's wrong with them or they're not living in the fullness of who they could be or should be so with that being said we move now into the new testament matthew chapter 19 verses 10 through 12 i'm not going to read the entire thing uh the entire section here the entire section is actually really rich there's a lot to be said here jesus is giving a little bit of a teaching on the subject matter of divorce remarriage He's going to talk a little bit about singles or eunuchs in this context, which is a little section I'm going to read. And then he moves on into the little section where he begins to talk a little bit about kids. It's a little section where he says, uh, don't let the little children be shoved off to the margins away from me. Bring them to me, in other words. Don't forbid them from coming to me. But I'm going to read verses 10 through 12, and this is what Jesus has to say. So after Jesus was done talking with him about the idea of divorce and remarriage, again, it's a really rich teaching. I don't have time to go into it. The disciples take away from this message that Jesus gives on divorce and remarriage. It says this. Uh, then the disciples said to him, in, if such is the case of man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Just think about that. Jesus's, if Jesus' goal was to basically uh, persuade people away from marriage, um, he, he succeeded, right? Because the disciples are kind of like, I'm not really even sure. If this, if this is the case, then maybe it would be better for us not to marry. But what Jesus does is rather even addressing their question, he now shifts gears and begins to talk a little bit about eunuchs, which is odd. Again, keep in mind the passages from the Old Testament of eunuchs and who they were and where they stood within the culture at large. Now Jesus begins to say this. Not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. Verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. These eunuchs have had made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. And what Jesus is suggesting here is that what I'm about to tell you, what I am telling you, if you're able to receive it, receive it. In other words, the big idea I think that Jesus is saying is that if you have ears to hear or desire to want to make Make space for this truth. Make space for it. And I think we'd all agree, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, everything that Jesus says has value. It's important. It doesn't mean that you're always going to understand it. It doesn't even mean after six times of reading it, you're going to still understand it. But it means that it has importance and significance. And I think this is one of those passages where it's easy for us to gloss over and be like, I don't even know what he's talking about with regards to eunuchs. Why is he describing this? But here's what I want to go back to, and I'm going to circle back to. Because Jesus says, if you have the ability to receive this, receive this. So my hope would be that we are able to receive this. And here's what Jesus describes. There's basically three different ways in which people are, in essence, brought into the state of being a eunuch. Now, no doubt, Jesus is referring to eunuchs as in a metaphorical sense. And again, here's literally what the definition of eunuch is in, I don't know, dictionary.com. It says, a man who has been castrated, who employed, one employed to guard the woman's living areas in an uh, oriental court. He says, an ineffectual person a nation of political eunuchs, and again, that's where I said literally the actual Greek word is a connotation or brought together two words, which means literally bedroom guard. But he describes there's three different categories in which people are brought into the state of eunuch. Hopefully you guys are doing okay. You guys are awake. You guys are all right. All right, let's keep going. 
number one, he says there are some that are actually born that way. Some that are born that way. Um, again, some scholars would suggest that this is probably a reference to people that are either intersex or asexual or have had some other form of reason that has prohibited them from actually ever engaging in that state of being married or having children or being in a long-term relationship the way that many other people have enjoyed. Secondly, he goes on to say there are those that have been made that way, meaning that they have castrated, they've been castrated or they enter into that particular relationship for a variety of reasons. But then the last thing that Jesus describes are there are those that actually choose this way and he describes for the sake of God's kingdom. Now again, in a culture that valued marriage, family, longevity, land, for you to basically say, I'm going to make myself someone that is completely on the outside of all of that which defined them as valuable would be ludicrous. Unless what Jesus is saying is so profound and beautiful, which I think it is, that we need to capture a vision of it. And here's what Jesus is saying. I believe. There are those that have for the sake of God's kingdom, recognizing that God is doing something fresh and new on this planet, That's so beyond, so beautiful, so amazing, so extravagant, so overwhelmingly good that they willfully choose to say, I'll embrace that, that kingdom, over marriage, family, buying land, having a house with a white picket fence and a few dogs, and then a vacation home someplace else, and doing all the typical status quo stuff that American dreamers tell me I must do. And I think that's what Jesus is suggesting. There are those that embrace this life. Now, again, we're going to get more into this next week, but what I want to do right now is I want to finish up with some final thoughts. Uh, my aim today was really just to try to lay a biblical foundation for thinking about this and then begin to open the possibilities of what this fruitful, I don't know, garden could end up looking like and how you, if that is you, if you are in that particular stage or pattern or place of life, that you are not doomed to a life of fruitlessness. You're not doomed to a life of loneliness. So I want to finish with some quick uh, fire round. Actually, before I even jump into that, I want to read one final passage. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And this will hopefully end this on a good note. Acts chapter 8, it's the story of uh, Philip. Some of you are probably familiar with it. I'm going to read it because it involves, again, another eunuch. So this makes a whole lot of sense and hopefully will bring us down into a place where we can conclude. It says this in verse uh, 26 of chapter 8 of the book of Acts. The angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then there is a desert place. Verse 27, then he rose and he went and there was an Ethiopian. He was a eunuch. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join to his chariot. And then Philip ran over to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. He reads this passage. He was led like a sheep, uh, led to the slaughter, like a lamb. Then he goes on to basically ask the question, who is this a reference to? Now, there's no doubt some scholars and theologians actually believe that this little reference to that is probably just a reference to the larger whole. So again, this is the passage that we read out of Isaiah chapter 53, which kind of enclosed this larger narrative and includes even a eunuch. And there's probably this question that may be going on in this eunuch's mind. Now, again, he, he had a very high-level job. He was a politician's 
guardian, right? Or he worked for a politician down in Africa. And this is who he was, extremely important. He was there in Jerusalem, worshiping God. And yet he also, no doubt, would have felt the sting of being on the outside. Why? Well, the text tells us he was, he was a eunuch. And Philip begins to unpack to him the story of Jesus. Verse 34, it says, Then the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I asked, does the prophet say? And about him, uh, is this about himself or somebody else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and he began with this scripture, to, and he told him the good news about Jesus. In verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and then the eunuch said, See, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and then he baptized him there. And the point that I want to make is this, is that whoever this eunuch is, he was not shunned by Philip, who was a leader, a follower in the early church, a follower of Jesus in the early church. He, he did not shove him off to the side. He did not ask him to show, hey, what's your marriage card? What's, where, how many kids do you got? What does your land proposition look like? None of that, because it didn't matter in the context of the kingdom of God. To prove this, he gets baptized, which is a way of basically saying you're inducted into this family by way of immersion. That's what baptism is. So I want to finish with a quick little rapid fire, and then I'll conclude. Uh, Number one, we'll go through these real quick. Number one, Jesus was single. Big E on the I chart. Jesus was single. So again, the idea that oftentimes says, unless I'm married, unless I have kids, I cannot live a fulfilled, satisfied life. Again, I'm not trying to make an argument for singleness, nor am I necessarily making an argument for marriedness. I'm just simply saying that the idea that oftentimes can be brought about within modern, Western, maybe church context and cultures is that if someone is not married, then somehow they are deficient or something needs to be fixed that is broken in them. And the point of the matter is, is that Jesus himself was not married. Paul, the greatest missionary apostle, was not married. And then, this is interesting to me, but Christians actually have an extremely unique eschatological, meaning idea of end times, vision of marriage. Uh, if you want reference on this, go ahead and take a look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 30 through 31. I'll read it real quickly. It says, for the resurrection, for in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? So Jesus makes it really clear, like in the future state, this idea of marriage that we enjoy right now will not be a thing. Why is that important? Some religions actually have an eschatological vision of this. Mormons and Muslims, for example, have a viewpoint that in the future, in the age to come, there will be forever marriage to another human being or virgins in that case of Islam. But the point that I would make is this, is that not in Christianity. In Christianity, it's different. And this is the image I think Jesus is saying. So why does this matter? Because in the sake of looking at these things on a bigger, broader scale, that if indeed the idea or the concept of a future that Jesus is remaking all things new, that the future will look vastly different than what it is today. What that does, it allows us to live in the present in a way that does not put so much weight upon marriage and children to the point that it would alienate or exclude or cause to feel deficient those that are not. Nor does it create this context that says my entire life 
is dependent upon whether or not I'm in a relationship or not right now. So I will do everything I can. I will stress out with a degree of anxiety that is unhealthy at this point right now because the hope of the future is one day we will be with Jesus forever. And the point that I would make in terms of closing all of this, that what Jesus offers is a new way of viewing marriage, family, singleness, and the expanse of his kingdom or the idea of land. But in the idea of land here is not necessarily a geographical location of Israel, but his kingdom that ultimately spans the cosmos, the entire created order. That all of our desires for intimacy, love, acceptance, companionship, and belonging are ultimately found in Jesus. So this radically reshapes the way that we think about the idea of singleness and how we really should be thinking about how we treat those that are not married. That we are a family, a community that comes alongside each others. That the idea of getting married should never mean we find ourselves only hanging out with people that are simply like us. That's how the world operates. Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom operates. Next week, as we finish up this idea of thinking about this, and we'll wrap this up right now, is we'll take a look at more of kind of a historical context of how this played out in the history of the church. Um, we'll talk a little bit of kind of modern context. We'll kind of distinguish between Western cultures, progressive ideas, uh, Eastern cultures, traditional ideas, how this kind of plays into it. We'll talk a little bit about what the singleness redeemed looked like, some of the myths, I think, that are around the concept of singleness. And um, yeah, it should be a fun little journey.